The following episode was recorded live on YouTube for Adulting.TV Live. Welcome to Adulting, the podcast where we want to adult every day. Download episodes at adulting.tv. Well, welcome to Adulting. I am Harlan. I'm here with Miranda. Miranda, it looks like you're in a car. You're joining us. I think that's what's going on. Um, let's see if the connection's any good. Um, and we're here with Mindy Jensen from Bigger Pockets. How are you, Mindy? Hello. I'm good. How are you, Harlan? I'm fantastic. Uh, we're going to talk about real estate and buying a house. And for me, that's something I've never done. Um, I haven't had a need to settle down and for me personally, it's not part of my investment plan. So I have rented my whole life. I have no experience with buying a house. However, it is something that a lot of people want to do to feel like an adult. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Why why don't you go ahead and and introduce yourself, Mindy. Uh, Tell us a little bit about bigger pockets and what that is, and then then go into a little bit about your story with uh, real estate. Sure. So Bigger Pockets is a real estate investing social network. We have a podcast, a blog, a forums where you can basically learn how to invest in real estate without the hype, meaning we're not going to try and sell you a $40,000 course on how to invest in real estate. We're just going to give you the information and help you jump into it, give you the tools to jump in, and then you do it Uh, based on your knowledge that you have gained from us. I have been investing in real estate since uh, before dirt was invented. Um, It's been a long time. I'll just say since the late 90s. And um, I bought my first property because I did not want to rent anymore. I felt like renting was throwing away my money. Uh, But I also was looking to settle down and put down roots. I've actually lived in, I think I counted it up once, it's like 27 houses uh, my dad, I wasn't a corporate brat. I was a, uh, I'm sorry, I wasn't an army brat. I was a corporate brat. So my dad's company transferred us around a lot. And I just, I always wanted to have friends for more than five years. I've currently never lived in a house for more than five years in my whole life. And I'm, let's say north of 30. Um, well, north of 30. So I bought my first property I just, I got married and it was a condo and he had a house. So we sold my condo and I bought it for $50,000 and I sold it for $75,000. And I thought, oh my goodness, I just made all this money for basically doing nothing except painting the walls and putting in a tile floor. So that hooked me. And my investment strategy is the live-in flip where I buy a property that's unattractive, but structurally sound. I don't buy, you know, mold or broken foundations or things like that. I buy a property that is structurally sound. I go in and I live in it while I'm fixing it up. So I take the ugly kitchen and I make it pretty. I take the ugly bathrooms and I make them pretty. I paint the walls. I get rid of the shag carpeting. And that is a model that anybody can follow because it's not that difficult to fix up a house. You don't have to fix up the whole thing all at once. You don't have to take it down to the studs all at once. Um, And there's different levels of rehab. You know, you could have a really great house that has one ugly bathroom or a really great house that has a really ugly kitchen, but everything else is awesome. So that's my history in investing. And I am a licensed real estate agent 
some tips that I have for living in your flip is to schedule breaks. You know, when you finish a great big project, don't start another one for a couple of days. Take the weekend off. And uh, But yes, it is a perpetual mess. And you may ask why I do this. I will tell you. I pay no capital gains taxes on any property that I sell. Right now, if you buy a house and you live in it for two of the last five years and own it for two of the last five years, when you sell, you pay zero capital gains taxes up to $250,000 if you are a single person and up to $500,000 if you are married. It seems like a good tax benefit. Um, yeah, it's so- worth a mess. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, how about uh, like brokers' commissions? Uh, you said you were your own real estate agent, so you avoid commissions. Well, okay, I'm an agent with an asterisk. I just got my license. Well, I got my license uh, three years ago, and I have not actually purchased a house for myself yet. So I haven't I haven't saved on brokers commissions yet, but I that is one of the reasons why I got my license. Another one is just to have access to the MLS or the multiple listing service, which is where all real estate agents list the properties that they have for sale. That's where all real estate agents go to find properties for sale when they're looking for their buyers. I think a lot of our listeners are probably wondering, well, how do I even get started with purchasing uh, a house? I I think uh, probably um, they've never purchased any house in in any form. And so this would be an opportunity for them to really get a a great process down for for identifying and then buying uh, their first property, whether it's to live in or to invest in, but most likely the first property is going to be to live in. Sure. So before you can even start looking for a property, you're going to need to know your credit score. Because if you've got a credit score of like 400, you're not going to buy a house. There are some properties, some uh, lenders will go down to as low as 580 credit score and still give you a mortgage. But most are looking for a 620 or higher. And the best rates go to 720 and higher. So if your credit score is down in the dumps, you want to bring that up at least into the 600s and preferably as close to 700 as you can get. And how much time do you need in advance of qualifying for a mortgage uh, to bring that credit score up if it's low? That's a really good question. It all depends on how low it is and why it's so low. If you never pay your bills ever, you're going to have a much harder time than if, say, you have a bad credit score because of uh, medical debt or some more less foreseen, more unforeseen. I'm not sure how to say that properly, but something that's that's different than just, I said I would pay these bills and I never did. And how about for someone with, with no credit history and how, how do they go about really getting to the point where they can qualify for a mortgage? Because the idea of buying a house without a mortgage seems to be almost impossible um, for at least most of our listeners and probably most of the middle class. Yes, I would agree with that statement. Uh, Actually, no credit is better than low credit. The FICO credit system goes from 300 to 850. And if you're much below about 500, you really had to work to get there. So having a zero credit score is actually better than having this ridiculously low credit score. Um, You're, you're, starting out on a better foot. And um, you want to get, 
You want to start building up your credit. If you have a car loan, that is going to give you credit. Um, if, you, if you don't go out and buy a car just for the opportunity to build your credit, but a credit card is a great way to start building your credit score. You get a, if you don't want to have massive debt, which you shouldn't want to do, you get a credit card and maybe you just put all of your gas or all of your groceries on there and then you pay it off as soon as you get the statement. So you're building credit, but you're not building debt. You could leave a, what I have heard in the past is you you build, let's say you put $100 on the card and then you pay off 50 this month and 50 next month, but you pay it off on time every month. It shows that you're a good credit risk. And you do this for a few months at a time. $50 on a credit card is not going to give you a huge interest payment, but it's going to show the bank that you're doing a good job at paying off the debt that you said you would pay off. All right. And that's a great way to build credit history. And and building up as fast as possible is something that you'll definitely want to do if uh, if you find yourself in a situation where you see your sites uh, see see the sites ahead of you and you're you're looking to buy a house now checking your credit score i know there are a lot of tools out there like credit karma credit sesame and even some credit cards now uh, will give you your credit score for free there's there's many different credit scores though how do you know which one to check to make sure you're on the same page as um, the potential banks who are going to loan you money for your mortgage what a great question um, there every credit com- credit extending company will use their own method to figure out what your credit score is. So they take all of your credit report information and throw it into their own machines and do their own math magic. And then they come up with their own score. So this is why you will see your score be different, but you're not going to have a vastly different score. And it's not like your score 720 on one side, oh, it's only 719 on the other, I'm going to get denied a mortgage. It's, you won't appear at 800 here and 500 in a different place. You'll be about the same. And the the credit extending companies have a swing. You know, 20, 30 points isn't such a big deal. 10, 20 points isn't such a big deal. Um, It's not going to be the difference between getting a loan or not getting a loan unless you're way down there in the low, low, low scores. Um, So you go to these Credit Sesame and Credit Karma and you check your score and that's a good indication of what it is-ish. Okay. And it's close enough uh, to to work. Okay. So let's say you've done the background, you've prepared your finances, you feel that you have a strong credit and will qualify for uh, a mortgage that is around the amount that you'd need to buy a house in the range that you're looking at. But who do you go to next? Do you go to a real estate agent? Do you go to a, um, a mortgage broker? Do you go to your bank? What's the next step? The next step is kind of either or. You could either find an agent and then find a, a broker or find a, I'm sorry, a lender or find a lender and then find an agent. They should be done pretty close to when you're really ready to uh, make your purchase. Your broker, your lender will give you a pre-approval letter. I pre-approve this person up to $100,000 loan or up to $500,000 loan, whatever your number state. And they do a credit check. They do a background check. They run your debt to income 
they, they figure out all of these things and they figure out what you can afford and that's how they come up with their pre-approval uh, the pre-approval number. What I like to do and what I like to recommend is that you as the borrower go to several different companies, several different types of companies, your local bank, your local credit union, a national bank, maybe a mortgage broker, and ask them all to give you a quote. When It used to be that when you went to all these different places and you got a quote for all these different companies, they all counted against your credit score as a hard inquiry. And now if you get them all within a tight time frame, like one to two weeks, it's counted as one hard inquiry because you're just shopping around for the best rates. So why shouldn't you get the best rates? Your local bank might be the best rate, but you don't know unless you talk to other people. And you want to compare not only the rate itself, but also the, the closing costs. I have a guy who finances me out of Kansas City who has better closing costs than anybody else. And I save thousands of dollars by using him, even if his rate is a quarter point higher or an eighth of a point higher. So you do want to shop around for your rate and you do want to find a real estate agent that you can get along with, that communicates in the style that you are most comfortable with, and that is available when you're available. And I think that's really important. It's great to get a reference from somebody, but if I've got somebody who can communicate the way that my mother wants to communicate, that might not be the best way for me to communicate. Maybe I want to get emails all the time. Maybe I want to talk to you by text. If she insists on picking up the phone or he, I'm sorry, I'm not sexist. If he insists on picking up the phone and calling me every time they want to talk to me, that might not be the best way for me to communicate. If they're only available Monday through Friday from 10 to 4, that might not work with my work schedule. So you want to make sure that the person you're choosing as your real estate agent can work with you the best way that you work. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like this process is very thought intensive and will take a fair amount of time as you're shopping around for uh, for a real estate agent or shopping around for um, a uh, mortgage source. Um, when you Okay. You said you have a guy. Tell, tell me more about that. What, what, is, <laughs> that? what is that? What does that mean? Is, is he a mortgage broker? Is he someone who finances, directly finances as an investor? What does that mean? He is a mortgage broker out of a bank that gives me a loan in Kansas City. So they they qualify me based on FHA guidelines so that they can sell the loan to anybody. They give me the money and then they sell it so they get their money back so they can do it again and again. That is their mortgage investment strategy. My right. local bank may keep it in-house. That's called a portfolio loan where they don't sell it to somebody else. Um, it just, it depends on, a local bank could still sell it out. I don't know. It's kind of kind of difficult to say, but my guy in Kansas City, I have used him the last seven times that I have gotten a loan and I'll use him the next time I need a loan because nobody beats his rates. Nobody beats his closing costs. And it's thousands of dollars that I'm saving, not just a couple of pennies. And I know he can get the job done. Yeah. Yeah, Your, that's really important. That is really important. Can I say his name? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Oh. Yeah. His name is Todd Bucati, and he is with the National Bank of Kansas City. Fantastic. And Maybe he'll get some referrals from you. Uh, I hope so. He does a great job. He closes when he says he's going to close. And any issues that I have are my fault. And I will tell you about a fun little issue that I had. Yeah, okay. So what's, what issue have you had? <laughs> Uh, so 
my husband is a financial whiz. He's always looking for ways to make more money. We have an online bank account because it pays an eighth of a quarter of a point more than the guy down the street, which is still nothing. Um, when we were buying our last house, we had started the process to get a 401k loan, and I can't even remember why now. Borrowed $50,000 from our 401k and put it into our regular checking account. And he our online account so we would make more interest. And then he transferred it back. And he didn't transfer the entire amount back. So we couldn't prove what was going on. The lender was like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You can't prove anything. And I can't I can't show where this money came from. And the underwriters are wondering. So that's one of my, my points is don't do financial monkey business if you are wanting to buy a house. You don't buy a car. You don't buy a big screen TV. You don't go finance a trip to Jamaica. You don't ever finance a trip to Jamaica. But don't do any financial monkey business while until you are ready. And I'm sorry, until you are after you have closed the house. So once you decide you're going to find a, you're going to buy a house, no more big spending. Of course, you can buy groceries. Of course, you can put gas in the car. You can take trips that you've already planned on. But don't buy a diamond engagement ring for twenty five thousand dollars unless you're just swimming in cash. Don't buy an engagement ring for twenty five thousand dollars. Anyway, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, that's, that's that's a great tip. Um, all right, so let's say you you've got your guy and you're pre qualified. Um, what's the next step? Where do you go from there? So you are the boss. As the client, you are the boss. You decide that you want this payment for your property. Let's say you want to make. You want to have a thousand dollar a month house payment or two thousand dollars a month house payment. You look into what sort of mortgage that would be, and that's your price range. You can go a little bit up and a little bit down, but if that's what you're comfortable with and have been pre-approved for, that's where you're looking. You want to do maybe twenty five thousand dollars on either side, depending on how hot your market is. You may want to go a little bit lower because you're going to have to go above asking price in a hotter market. Oh, I'm throwing so many things out there. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> so let's let's start back. You want to find a price range. You ask your real estate agent to send you listings in this price range. When your agent does, you can click through the pictures. Oh, I like that house. I don't like that house. You make a list of your favorites and you ask your agent to show you these houses. So that's the next step, finding a house. And... You know, there's a lot of different types of properties you can look for. There's the condo, which is little to no exterior maintenance. You're not going to have to mow your lawn or shovel your sidewalk if you buy a condo. Uh, versus a single family home, you're probably going to have to do more maintenance or hire it out. Uh, there is the, the duplex, where you actually live in one side and rent out the other side. Or the, the triplex is three and the quadplex or fourplex is four. Um, you can use a regular residential loan to buy a multifamily property up to four units. And this is something that we call house hacking at biggerpockets.com. And that is when you buy a home that has more space than you need or buy a property that has more units than you need. You live in one and you rent out the extra space. In some instances, you can live for free, basically, because all of the rent can come in and pay your mortgage for you, which is nice. 
Not everybody in a super hot market is going to be able to find a property that they can afford. This doesn't really work in New York or San Francisco. Um, but in in our market, we have people who are doing this all the time. In in a lot of the Midwest markets, this is really popular. You, uh, you so so you've talked about figuring out how much you can afford and what your price range is going to be, and then looking for houses based on that. How do you decide on what some of your non-negotiable needs in terms of uh, your living space are going to be? Uh, that's a really great question. And that is going to be a personal preference. And that's something you should really take time to write down and figure out exactly what you need. Uh, my first apartment that I rented had no dishwasher. And it didn't really occur to me that this was an issue until after I moved in and I had all these dishes to wash and I had to wash them by hand. I, first world problems. This is really not an issue. But <laughs> when I moved out of that, I decided I was going to buy a place and the top thing it had to have was a dishwasher. Um, now I have more on my list of must-haves, but at the time I was really easy to please. <laughs> I just wanted a dishwasher so I didn't have to wash them by hand. So, you know, is that important? Is having a backyard important? Is having no maintenance important? My sister has a condo and she never wants to buy a house because then she'd have to shovel snow and mow the lawn. A lot of first-time buyers have this sort of trepidation. Oh, I don't want to make the agent mad. So what? She's not living there. This is your house. So make sure it has everything you need or everything you want. So let's say you have shopped around now and you found one that's within your price range and it has everything you want. I mean, talk about an ideal world. Um, <laughs> what's? How do you go about making an offer um, or deciding how much you want to offer? This is where your real estate agent is going to really be able to help you out. Um, in theory, you have chosen a really great agent who knows the area well and knows the market well. In a market where there are more sellers than buyers, you can pretty much be guaranteed you're going to pay over asking and a lot of, I'm sorry, when there's more buyers than sellers, you're going to pay over asking price, you're going to be doing a lot of uh, give and take, mostly giving. Um, in an air in a market where the there are more sellers than buyers, you can be a lot more choosy, and that's when you can make lower offers and you can ask for more things from the seller. So knowing what kind of market you have is key to the kind of offer you're going to make. Um, in Denver, we are a super hot market. You can't satisfy all the buyers. Everybody's flocking to Denver. We have the best weather on the planet. I'm just saying it's really beautiful and wonderful here. And Denver is a very popular real estate market. You, a property goes on the market. It goes under contract within two or three days wow. for over asking price, waiving all contingencies, uh, extra earnest money down, no approval, the cash only it's ridiculous how hot this market is. So if that's your market, you're going to have to do a lot of other things to make your offer stand out. And again, this is where your agent can really help you out. If houses are selling for 20,000 over asking price, making an offer of 20 below asking price is probably not going to be a good idea. You're not going to get, you're not going to get the property. You're going to 
make your agent mad. Your agent is required by law to make any offer you want, but uh, they're not required to continue to represent you if you continue to make ridiculous offers that aren't going to be accepted. So, you know, look to your agent for guidance for what kind of market it is, what kind of offer they think you should make. Um, there's a lot of things that go into the offer, though, besides just price. You can make an offer for full asking price and then ask for all of your selling, all of your closing costs to be paid by the seller. Well, that's not going to look as nice as a slightly lower priced offer where they're not asking for any concessions. Any, that's what it's called as concessions when you're asking the seller for money back. So you make an offer through your agent. They write it up. It's a huge amount of paperwork. The Colorado buy and sell contract is, I think, 17 pages, but it might have gone up to 18 this year. Um, I have not sold a house this year yet, so I'm not sure how many pages it is. Some sections of the contract that never change. And there are some sections of the contract that can change, like the amount of uh, concessions you're asking for, who's paying for title insurance. You can offer to pay for title insurance to the seller so that your offer is more attractive. Title insurance could be $1,000, $2,000. You've got title insurance. That's just an extra $2,000 that the seller is not paying out of pocket or is pocketing because they've is pocketing because they're not paying it out of pocket. So th that brings up uh, a number of uh, a number of questions. So okay. along with title insurance, what are some of these extra fees that are going to come out and possibly surprise a first-time buyer who's never oh. been through this process before? Good question. And there's a lot of them. So you make your offer and then you have a home inspection. You don't have to have a home inspection. It isn't required by law. I certainly recommend it because you don't know what you don't know. And I had a deal that fell through based on a home inspection that could have cost me tens of thousands of dollars. I could have lost my entire investment into the property. There was a product a while back called EFIS. It's engineered uh, fake stucco. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, it's like a fake stucco product. And when it's installed correctly, it's great. But when it's installed incorrectly, water can get behind it and water has no place to go. It creates mold. And there were houses in Texas. It was originally designed to be a dry weather place or a dry weather product. And they started installing it in places like Texas where it's very humid and water got behind it because they were it was installed improperly and houses were condemned. You couldn't even fix them. They had mold so bad. So I found a property. It looked beautiful. I discovered this and I walked away from the property. A home inspection can run four to $800 depending on all the different inspections you get. There are other inspections like a septic inspection. A regular home inspector isn't going to inspect the septic system. But if you need to replace a septic system and you skip that septic inspection, that's $15,000. If the septic inspection is, you know, if it comes back bad, then yeah, you're out the $600 for the septic inspection, but you're not out the $15,000. So the, definitely the inspections. There are all sorts of fees involved with getting a loan. Um, sometimes your mortgage broker will tack on a, a fee of his own. Um, there's attorney fees and title fees, and it's really, it's a pretty big list. 
but it can be several thousand dollars on top of everything else. So when you buy a $100,000 house, it's not $100,000. It's like 103 or 104 or 105, depending on you know what area of the world you're in. You talked about inspections. So how do we find a, <laughs> an, an inspector and someone you can trust to do the job well? That's another really good question. Are you sure you've never bought a house before? You're asking all these questions like you know what you're talking about. This I just ask a lot of questions. <laughs> uh, there, there was, there was a couple of years ago. I was, I was searching and I found a place, and I was, I was pretty, pretty, um, pretty interested. And then I just decided, you know, again, I didn't want to settle down, so I am staying away from buying for now. But I, you know, I just ask questions, so. Uh, you can always buy later. I think if yeah. you don't want to settle down, then you absolutely should not buy a house. Because it's a lot easier to move when you just have to cancel your, your t- lease or wait until your lease runs out and then leave. So absolutely. how do you find a good home inspector? Yes. I moved to Denver from Wisconsin about five years ago. And I became a real estate agent. I joined a, a real estate uh, group. And I was talking to, we were having a big office meeting. I said, hey, does anybody have a good inspector? And 16 people out of 30 said, use this guy. This one guy does the best inspections. He's not looking to get the house sold. He's looking to see what's going on with the house. I don't wish to cast dispersions upon the home inspection community, but they do get a lot of referrals from real estate agents. And if you become known as the inspector who always pass, who always fails houses, maybe you don't get the next job, the next referral. So maybe you start passing houses that possibly shouldn't. If you ask around for referrals, you'll hear the same name pop up over and over again. So ask every single person you know that has bought a house in your area. Ask all of your neighbors, ask your real estate agent, ask, have them ask people in their office. Um, I used this guy that everybody recommended and he was amazing. He found some things that I don't know that other people would have found. You mentioned uh, attorney's fees too. Um, obviously with all this paperwork, there's going to be some lawyers involved and uh, the whole closing process. What What is the whole cl- closing process like? So I live in a title company state. What does that mean? I used, to, I used to live in Illinois, which is an attorney state. So in Illinois, it is very typical to have an attorney represent you at closing to kind of explain all the paperwork and walk you through everything. When I moved to Wisconsin, nobody uses an attorney. It was weird that I brought one to closing. And when I moved to Colorado, nobody uses an attorney here. Everybody just uses a title company. So the title company takes all the documents, this giant stack of documents, and they explain it to you step by step. This page says this. Here's where you sign. And you can either take their word for it and sign. I mean, they're not lying to you, but, or you can sit there and read the entire document. The thing is, you've got this much paperwork to do, to go through. So most people don't read the documents. An attorney will always be willing to represent you, no matter if you're in an, if you are in an attorney state or in a title company state. But having an attorney, it's not necessary to have an attorney. Now, if you're buying from, if you're not using a real estate agent, there is something called FSBO, for sale by owner. If you have chosen to 
not use a real estate agent, you have found a, a for sale by owner home, I do recommend having an attorney there with you just to double check everything. You want them to look over your uh, purchase agreement before you sell it, uh, before you sign it, I'm sorry. And you just want to have somebody else watching your back. And then what? how, how long does a closing usually take? An hour and a half. There's this whole idea that there's a long time of waiting for the closing process to start, and then it's quick after that. What is its waiting period? Yeah, so you make the offer. Then you have, within five or 10 days, you have your home inspection. You have your, the bank will give you an appraisal. They'll come out and value the home and then give you a loan based on the appraisal value. If your home does not appraise for what you have offered, you either have to bring money to closing to cover the difference, or you get the seller to give you a a lower price, or you walk away from the property. But between the time you make the offer and the time you close is typically 30 to 45 days. And after you have your inspection, your lender takes over and he passes your paperwork through the biggest maze you've ever seen in your life. And he asks you for more paperwork and more documents. Oh, I need your W-2. I need your I-9. I need your this, that, whatever. And then you do have a closing date that's written in your contract. You have a series of deadlines that are written in your contract. And those are very important uh, because you don't want to miss them. If you miss them, then you can't cancel the contract based on that particular item. So let's say your your home inspection deadline is 10 days. You have to get a home inspection and be cool with everything that happened with the home inspection or cancel the contract before 10 days is up. Or you can't use the home inspection as a reason to get out of the contract. And if you want to use the home inspection, if that's your only contingency or that's the only reason you have to get out of the contract, you have to use it by that time or you lose your earnest money, which is something we have not talked about. There's so much involved in buying a house. Yeah, there really is. What is earnest money? <laughs> earnest money. So when you write up your contract, you want to give the seller some sort of uh, consideration to show that you're serious. You don't want to give them a dollar or $10 because that doesn't really show you're serious. Oh, I lost a dollar. Shucks. Too, do- too bad. You give them, typically in my area, it's 1% of the purchase price. So if you're buying a $300,000 house, you write them a check for $3,000. You write it to the title company, not to the person. You don't want the seller to have this money because then maybe they go to Vegas and you don't have any more money. Your earnest money has gone no matter what. So you write it to the title company. The title company holds it in their escrow account until closing. And then that just gets credited towards your down payment or your closing costs or whatever, you don't lose that money unless you walk away from the contract outside of the deadline. How long does it take? Okay. So typically you write the contract and closing date will be between 30 and 45 days. And this is a date that is given to you by your, uh, your lender and a day that you come up with uh, on your own, kind of in conjunction with your lender, your lender is not going to be able to fund your loan in 10 days. Unless you have a super lender and you don't because they're all busy right now and nobody's going to fund your loan in 10 days. And actually, even 30 days is starting to look a little tight. It's more like 40, 45 days just because there's so much backlog. So after you have your inspection, it just kind of is in the lender's seat. 
And then, so you you have an idea of when you're going to close, but then they will give you an exact dollar amount based on the day that you close. So why is it that, um, like where's, the, where's the money coming from that there's a backlog? They have to do a lot of paperwork. I'm not sure exactly the the precise loan process, but I know that I give my my lender a boatload of paperwork, and he looks at my his, my credit history, my income level. They also verify your income, your job, right again, right before you close, like two days before you close. So if you lose your job halfway through the process, they're not going to give you the loan. Uh, there's a lot of underwriting. Um, I actually don't know what that means. I just know that it goes into underwriting and that's where it's at all the time that I call up. But my husband is self-employed too. So for uh, at least one year of self-employment, you cannot get a mortgage. It's almost impossible to get a mortgage. It doesn't matter what your bank account looks like. It doesn't matter what your credit score is. Uh, We have high 800 credit scores. We have enough money in the bank that we could have paid cash for the loan but for the property but it was 3.2 percent interest rate which is unheard of so we didn't want to pay cash we wanted to buy the house with a mortgage and we can't get a mortgage now we can because it's been two years that he's been self-employed but yeah if you're self-employed you're going to have to jump through a lot more hoops to get a mortgage yeah i think that's really important because i know you know um uh side hustles and um and self-employment and entrepreneurial um endeavors seem to be a big hit these days and that is what what people are looking to and and people are making a living but it's it's a it, like you said it's harder to qualify for a mortgage if you can qualify at all i mean even if you have a significant amount of assets in the bank uh they still will uh you'll still have some difficulty right yeah it's like i said if you haven't had a whole year of un- of self employment you are going to have next to impossible it's next to impossible to get a, a loan for a house Um, They prefer two years. And even then they're going to ask, like Miranda said, they're going to call people. They're going to ask all sorts of questions. They're going to want proof. They're going to see your bank statements. Um, They're going to do a lot lot more verification on you because it is so easy to, I don't want to say fake, but fake. I will say fake. It's so easy to fake your bank statement. It's so easy to fake your income. Hey, just write me a check. I'll give it right back. So if let's let's say you uh, submit an offer and um, it will either be accepted or countered what what's like the what's the ca- countering process like The countering process can go on forever uh, it could go on until you both reach an agreement if you are offering at a decent price then your your chances the, the more the closer to asking price or over that you go, the more chance, the better your chance is to get your offer accepted. But if the if they have a different offer, if they have a better uh, a better closing time, something that works better for them, they may counter you and they just send you a one page statement, typically that says everything in your offer is the same except the price or the closing date or the seller concessions or whatever it is they don't like. And then you can sign it. And that means that that document, in addition to your document, is now the contract. 
or you can counter. No, I still want to only offer you the price that I gave you. No, I, I still need your seller concessions or whatever it is you're asking that is different. And you just go back and forth until you both can agree or you both can agree that it's not going to work out. And then what happens uh, once the closing goes through and let's say you've moved in, um, what if you discover things weren't as uh, advertised? Ooh, it depends on what wasn't as advertised. So let's say they you have your home inspection. Hopefully you have had your home inspection. And the home inspection is not a guarantee that the property is going to be great for the next 15 years. It is a snapshot of the home at the time of inspection. So the furnace is 10 years old. Typically furnaces last 20 years. So you should have approximately 10 years left. That doesn't mean that the day you close, the furnace doesn't go out. That doesn't, that it's no guarantee. So if it's something like that, you don't have much recourse. If it's something that was an outright lie, like they said there was air conditioning and they what it, there, it turns out there isn't, or they said there was no leaks and then the basement floods every time it rains, uh, you could have some recourse. There is a document that you go through when you go to list a property. It's called the seller's property disclosure. And the seller answers questions to the best of their ability. No, there's never been meth cooked in my house. If you discover that there's been meth cooked in their house, you can try to sue them. There was an instance in Colorado a few years ago. A young couple moved into a meth house with their baby. They didn't know it was a meth house. All the neighbors came. Always talk to the neighbors. Oh, we'll bring that up in a minute. They talked to the neighbors. The neighbors are like, oh, yeah, they were cooking meth in there. I hope they remediated it. And these people are like, what? There's no remediation. They had a test done. It was like swarming with meth or whatever happens. I don't actually do meth. So I don't know what that means, what the proper terminology is. Uh, but it was, they had to move out because meth will mess up your baby's brain. Like as an adult, it doesn't have as much of an issue. It help it, it does something to your baby's developing brain. So don't buy a meth house. But yeah, so you can go and try to sue the person. You have to be able to locate them. You have to, you know, you have to force them to take the the house back. There's there's a lot of things that you can do, but they all revolve around lawsuits. Mm. Um, now, talking to the neighbors. Yes. Those neighbors will be as chatty as they can possibly be to you. And you want to talk to them before you own the property. Well, I live on a street where a man at the end of the street died. It was not in the house. I'm sorry. He died in the house in the bathtub. He was there for 12 days in August before he was found. Yes, it was a delightful aroma. Um, Sunset cleaners had to come. It was a real mess. And that was not disclosed in the listing because it doesn't have to be disclosed. Wow. Colorado is, uh, it, 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 it's called unfairly stigmatizing, unfairly stigmatizing the property. So if the seller of the property does not want that disclosed, they don't have to disclose it. But if you would have talked to the neighbors, you would have discovered everybody knew that Harold died in that house. So if you would have talked to the, the neighbors, you would have discovered that he had died. You would know where he died and you may have changed your offer based on that information. 
Mm-hmm. So always talk to the neighbors. They may have nothing to say, which is the best possible outcome. But if there's something that happened in that house, you want to know about it before you buy it. How do you do that? Do you just walk up to the door and knock? Sure. You can walk up to the door. You can, I mean, in any, pretty much any time of the day, you can find somebody out and about, you know, mm-hmm. maybe they're working in their yard or they're, you know, getting ready to get in their car. But yeah, if you, I mean, this is a huge investment. Is it worth knocking up, walking up to a house and knocking on the door? Sure. I think so. Is there, are, are there, is strategy any different between buying a house, say, in a suburb where, you know, you're on a street and there are houses next door versus, you know, perhaps buying a um, farm property or, or even, let's say, uh, you know, a city property and like a high rise apartment sort of thing? Uh, I think it's just personal preference. I don't really think that there's a different strategy. You're looking for different things. Obviously, if you're in the market for a downtown high-rise condo, it's not competing with a farm property, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really just your personal preference. Okay, so you wouldn't you wouldn't there's there's like no other specific things you might want to look for or be on the lookout for, I guess. Uh, I think you're, you're saying things like in a farm, you're going to want to make sure it's got a well or a source of water so you can water whatever it is you're growing on the farm or mm-hmm. animals you're, you've got there. But you don't need to look for a source of water in a city condo because it's right there at the sink. <laughs> So, you know, just little things like that. But that's something you would already have in mind. If you're buying a farm, you know you need water. So do you do you shop and um, decide to buy a house based on the idea that, well, this is where I'm going to be living for 30 years? Or do you assume that, well, I'd like to live here for 30 years, but chances are life will happen and I'll have to move before then? How do you, how do you kind of weigh some of those ideas when you're um, making these decisions? Sure. I think that if you are not sure that you will be in the same place in two years, you should take the uh, Harlan Landis route and rent. <laughs> and if you feel like you're going to be in a in a place, in an area of the world for two to five years or two, I would say two plus years, and you want to have a place that you can call your own, then go for it. You know, it I, it doesn't have to be your forever home. Uh, I think they say people move on an average of every seven years. I've never made it to seven years, but uh, <laughs> every seven years, people upgrade their house or, you know, circumstances change. If you're a single person and you're buying a property, maybe you get married. Can you and your spouse live in the property that you're buying? You know, could you and a spouse live in the property you're buying? Are you looking for a property that is just for one person? Um, could you live there with a baby? Do you want a baby? If you could live in this tiny little house without a baby and you don't want a baby, great, buy the house. And how about thinking uh, down the line in terms of selling? How, when, when does that start to play into the equation? When the house no longer works for what you need it to work for. Um, I lived in, my first property was a condo. It was a two bedroom and one bath condo. And when I got married, my husband had a house. He had a three bedroom, two bath house with a giant yard. And I liked that better. So we sold my house, my condo and we moved in, I moved into his house. 
when that house didn't work for us anymore, we fixed it up and we moved out. We put it on the market and moved out. And our our reasons for moving are a little bit different. But basically, when it doesn't work for you anymore is when you start to look for another house. Most of the time, people are outgrowing it. Uh, but there are also unfortunate circumstances like death or divorce. Yeah, and it seems like often um, people sell because they uh, they have to. I mean, they either they, perhaps they get a new job or they're out of a job, and they either need to move or they need to downsize. And suddenly, someone who was living in this house and they were comfortable now feels the pressure to sell quickly. How do you? fight against that pressure? Uh, in some cases, you can't. If you have a new job, you have to sell it when you need to move for your new job. If you are unable to afford it, maybe you could get a renter in to kind of ease the pressure until you were able to sell. Uh, a lot of times people are unwilling to share their living space with some stranger. So to take the pressure off, sometimes you just need to sell. Sometimes you need to you know, if you can, it, I guess it depends on why you need to sell, what the pressure is, that's, that's mm -hmm. what's pressuring you to sell will mm -hmm. dictate how you alleviate that pressure. Along those same lines, I think this is something that affects a lot of people. How about the anxiety in, in such a long-term commitment that buying a house is? How do you get over that anxiety and uh, feel that you're ready to, to make that plunge and uh, buy that house for the first time? Oh, yeah. I've, it's been a long time since I bought my first house. And like I said before, I moved around a lot as a kid and I wanted roots. So, you know, when you get sick of renting, when you get sick of your rent going up, if you live in a in a place, I, I don't know if you followed San Francisco real estate. I don't know why you would have any reason to follow San Francisco <laughs> real estate. It's not part of your job. I follow San Francisco real estate and you don't even get a, a year-long lease in San Francisco. You get a month-to-month -month lease and every month your rent goes up or every two months or however they do it. So you're already paying these ungodly sums of money to live in this tiny little shack. And the next month it goes up again and again and again. So when you're tired of your rent going up, you may want to look at buying when you, I mean, you have to make sure you can afford it. People rent in San Francisco because they can't afford to buy. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think we covered a whole lot of ground today. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> why don't why don't we um and this it pro probably opened up a lot of questions for people. So I think the best thing to do is for us to say exactly how people can get a hold of you or find bigger pockets, and um and we'll 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 end on that note. I think. Sure. Okay. So biggerpockets.com is the website. And that's where you can go to learn about real estate investing. You are always welcome to send me an email at mindy at biggerpockets.com. That's M-I-N-D-Y at B-I-G-G-E-R-P-O-C-K-E-T-S.com. All right. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us, Mindy. Uh, this was a great, great discussion. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have any questions, you can also go to our website, adulting.tv slash ask. We can always address your questions in another podcast or in an article on the site. And, um, and yeah, please join us next week for another episode of Adulting. Thank you for listening to Adulting. 
find resources for this episode or download other episodes at adulting.tv. 